Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6 this morning. Make sure you check your cell phones. If you'd turn those off so they're not beeping and ringing, that would be most helpful. Appreciate that. Matthew, chapter 6. This morning, we're going to... uh, You know, when I, I think about all that is taking place around our world, it seems like since the beginning of October... The events in the globe have heightened to the extent of a uncertainty that, uh, that it seems that all the world is focused, on, again, on a little piece of real estate uh, in the Middle East. And again, when you watch and you hear these events, it's, you can't help but notice how everything is interrelated, interconnected. Nobody lives in an island in isolation. And it's easy that when we begin to contemplate and look at events and things that are going on, and you wonder, what is the future going to be like? What's the future going to be like uh, for uh, my years, my children, my grandchildren, great-grandchildren? And we live with a lot of uncertainty. And I found that when, in my life, what helps me and has always undergirded me and been a foundation is irregardless of whatever it is that I might question or be facing or whatever the issue is, really through the years, it really goes back to what do I believe about God? What do I believe about God? If God is the cosmic Santa Claus that promises every day is a Friday, then that's the way I live my life. And when I face tragedies and I face crises and I face uncertainties, then I begin to wonder what that cosmic Santa Claus is doing and how, what has he done for me lately? Because I have such a childish and, and irreverent view of the nature of God. And so my understanding of God, and I'm not talking about deep theology, I'm just saying, what is your foundation of who God is and your understanding? And does that match and square with the testimony of Scripture and the Word of God? One of my favorite authors in this old book I've had for, I don't know, uh, 40 years, 35 years, something like that, is A.W. Tozer, and this is one of his little books called The Knowledge of the Holy, and it's about the attributes of God. The thing about, I like about A.W. Tozer, he was the, uh, he's been long in heaven now, but he was with the Christian Missionary Alliance, and uh, one of the things I like and recommend people to, if they want to read something that has substance, but it's not long in their reading. The thing about A.W. Tozer is most of his chapters are a few pages because he wrote for so many years for the Alliance magazine, and a lot of what became in his books were those magazine articles. And so they're not really long, but they are pregnant with deep truth about God, the Spirit, all those things. And this one, the knowledge of the holy, and I've read this before, but it's worth reading again. And this is something he says right at the very beginning And again, this is a little book that is on the nature and character of God, the attributes of God. And he says this right at the get-go, right at the very beginning. Tozer writes this. He says, what comes into our minds, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion, no spirituality, we might say today, has ever been greater than its idea or view of God. Worship is either empty or pure as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts about God. Oftentimes when people walk through a crisis, when they walk through a valley, they walk through and face challenges, and it can be the loss of a, of a loved one prematurely in our eyes, and, and our own health, and our own sickness, and whatever it is, is immediately our understanding about what we believe about God. What, when I say believe, I mean, I'm not talking about what we've learned in Sunday school, but what is our foundational understanding about the nature and character of God? What do we really, really, really anchor or hold as the anchor into our life? 
And so this morning, the title of the message this morning is How to Face the Future or the Comfort of God's Providence. And I want to read a scripture just to set our, set our minds on this. And that's from Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 25. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. Therefore, Jesus, it's him speaking there on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them all. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious or worrying, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, don't be anxious, saying, What am I going to eat? What shall I drink? What shall I wear? For the Gentiles, meaning unbelievers, for the Gentiles seek after all these things. I think it's the NIV that says, The Gentiles run after all these things. But seek, he says, and he says, For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and yet your Heavenly Father knows, He knows that you need them all. Here it is. But seek. First, what? The kingdom of God and His righteousness. That's, that's our priority. That's where we should calibrate our life. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things. What things? Clothing, food, shelter, all those things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious. Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. In other words, tomorrow's got enough worries and troubles of its own. Sufficient for the day is our own trouble. Father, God, may you bless your word today. May it be an encouragement to your people here today as we exalt your name today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you just to notice, I don't, the message is a paraphrase, very loose paraphrase, but sometimes... The wording that Eugene Peterson uses is sometimes helpful. And in Matthew 6.34 of the message paraphrase says this, and I like the way it's worded. Give your entire attention to what God is doing right now. And don't get worked, about, don't get worked up about what He may or may not happen tomorrow. God will help you deal with whatever hard things come up when the time comes. Don't get worked up. We get worked up, don't we? Especially when we don't know what tomorrow will bring. Well, this morning uh, is not going to be necessarily a verse-by-verse exposition. It's going to be more thematic. You know, we go through books of the Bible, and we'll start back that after the first of the year. But this morning, I want to look at several scriptures as we uh, speak around this, a- this aspect of God's providence. The psalmist writes in Psalm 103, verse 19, in the New American Standard, The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His sovereignty, His sovereignty rules over all. Notice the same exact verse, but in the ESV translation, the Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His kingdom rules over all. Sovereignty, kingdom, they are speaking about the same thing. And so this morning, when we look at and unpack this wonderful biblical word, Uh, let's kind of refresh our minds a little bit in understanding. And what is providence? When we talk about providence, what is providence? And you may think, well, I know what providence is. Providence, Rhode Island. That's what providence is. I think uh, NBC, not too long back, had a TV show called Providence. Uh, There's uh, Providence Health Providers, used a lot, but we want to unpack. And what is the Bible Mean Well, before we unpack it, let me just kind of round out a definition that I think is in your handout. By the way, in your bulletin, you have a listener's guide there and some of the quotes and 
points that I'll have are on in the, in the handout, and uh, it'll help you follow along and make your time here and opening the word more valuable. But there's a definition by Wayne Grudem, who is one of my favorite writers and theologians, men of God, and this is how he defines providence, biblically speaking. It, it, he defines it, or again, brings together the biblical definition, that the word providence means to see ahead. The word is not just seeing, it's not just knowing, but actively involved and choreographing the events and our future to a specific end or goal. Okay, there's a big difference than just seeing, but God is actively involved in the future. He goes on to say, the understanding from Scripture that God is continually involved with all of His creation, He watches over that which He uniquely made, which He created, and He directs, all those words are intentional, All directs all of His creation towards the fulfillment of its divine purposes. You've heard me say many, many times, R.C. Sproul, who's with the Lord now, uh, I always like just the little phrase he said, if there is a renegade Adam roaming the universe outside or apart of God's control, then God by definition is not God. There is nothing outside of God's knowledge and also God's control. God never has to learn anything. Have you ever thought about that? He never has to learn anything. God knows all. There's five statements there in your little handout, uh, just again to kind of give a little uh, cliff notes around this, is that God upholds all things. He governs all events. He directs everything to its appointed end. He does this all the time and in every circumstance, and He does it always for His own glory. That's probably the missing component that we don't have, is that God does all things for His glory. Whether we compute it, whether we understand it, God is working all things for His glory that magnifies His name. Listen to me carefully. A God that is not in control of His creation, a passive deist. You know, a lot of our founding fathers, we equate, and they had Christian beliefs in a very loose general sense, but many of them were what uh, is called a deist, D-E-I-S-T, meaning this. They believed in God. They believe in a God that created and operates in natural law. But the a deist is that they believe, and this is kind of my, this is my message translation, that God created and God has gone on vacation forever. That He's not actively involved in what He made. That was their concept. And so everything is governed by natural laws and whatever. That is not a biblical, sorry Mr. Jefferson and Mr. Franklin, that is not a biblical understanding of the nature and character of God. So that a God that is, in, that is passive to His creation, uh, that is passive to man's rebellion or ignorance, uh, that type of God is a God that mankind has made in their own image. You hear what I'm saying? We think of idolatry as stone and wood carvings. No, an idol is anything that you put in place of God that you attribute your own worship or your own understanding, and we make gods out of our own image that fit our accommodation and what we believe. That is not the picture of Scripture. So God, the Bible presents God. By the way, this is just all introduction, so just hang on. You listen fast, and I'll go fast. God cares. Now, here's where it comes down to us. When we talk about providence, this is not just some abstract theological you know, concept. This is the fact of what I read in Matthew 6, is that God cares about the tiniest details of our life. That's what Jesus was saying in Matthew 6. He's intimately acquainted with the tiniest details of our life and our creation. Nothing escapes His notice. God is concerned over everything that He has made. There's nothing too big or too small. He, as I prayed, He knows when a sparrow hits the ground. 
He knows the number of hairs on our head. And for some, that's easier than others. He keeps track of the stars in the sky, uh, that the rivers that flow with the oceans. Get this, Psalm 139 speaks about, He sets the day of your birth and the day of your death, and God is in control of everything in between. When you look at a tombstone, you want to know the brevity of life? You look at born 1962, that was the year I was born, and what sometimes is there is a little dash, and then whatever the year that they died. That's the brevity of life is that little dash. Sobering, isn't it? And here's the thing. God, God, listen to me, God was there from your conception Paul said in Galatians 1 that before I was even in my mother's womb, you knew me and had a calling and a purpose for my life. That's why abortion is so abhorrent to a born-again believer. And I would also say this in relation, just by way of setting the table, is that God, because of His providence, God uses everything and wastes nothing. There's no accidents, only incidents with God. Listen, anytime you start talking about the nature and character of God and providence, you always get into what about theology. You know what what about theology is? Well, what about blank? Well, what about blank? What about blank? Look, here, here's something to comfort. It's comforting me. I don't know all the whatabouts. I don't know all the whatabouts. Sometimes people will come to me, and I'm sure Mike, and they want to ask you, they've had maybe a tragedy in their life or a child or son, and they want to ask you, why? Can you tell me, can you tell me why? And after many years, I've learned, don't try to answer what you don't know. See, when you're young in ministry, you do stupid things. You talk beyond your pay grade, right? And I found that, you know what I tell them? I say, look. I, I, I can't give you the answer to that. I can't tell you the things I don't know about God, but let me, let me give you this side. There's quite a bit I can say very confidently that I do know about God. Abraham said in Genesis 18.25, he said, Shall not the judge of all the earth always do right? Think about that. Always do right. So... I don't know a lot that you're asking me, but I do know quite a bit about God that counterweights my whataboutisms. I know that God is holy. I know that God is just. I know that God is loving. I know that He's merciful. I know that He's not willing that any should perish. I know that God is the God of the prodigal. I know a lot about God, and based on what I know about God, I'm going to tether my anchor on those sureties, and leave the mysteries to His care. Do you hear what I'm saying? And so this morning, Romans 8.28 is always that great Scripture that God works all things together for good to those that love Him and are the called according to His, what? Purpose. So, providence... The providence of God. Let me suggest this morning and use your listener's guide to follow along. And I think this will be helpful. This won't be exhaustive, but hopefully this gives some framework for you to think about some things and consider some things. Three, three areas of understanding God's providence as we trust Him in an uncertain future. God's providential power, number one, is God's providential power. Just some thematic headings. You see, providence, like sovereignty, they almost kind of work together. But sovereignty speaks about God's absolute rule. Providence speaks about God's guidance in this rule, okay? Look at Daniel 4.35. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and He does according to His will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none... 
can stay or withhold his hand and say, what have you done? Speaking about God. Remember when I, you, uh, Isaiah saw that vision in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1? It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and he was seated on a what? A committee table. No, where is he seated? He's seated on a throne. Psalm 11.4 from the New Living Translation. But the Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord still rules from heaven. He watches everyone closely examining every person on earth. And the prophet Jeremiah said, Ah, Lord God, it is you who made the heavens and the earth by your great what power. I read a story a number of years ago of a British passenger flight that was forced to turn back minutes before landing in Paris because one of the, or the pilot that was flying the plane of 30 years experience was somehow not qualified to land this airplane in the fog. They were going in fog and he wasn't qualified to do it. Not sure how he got in there. And they had to turn the plane around and fly back to London. Look, he looked like a pilot. He dressed like a pilot. He acted like a pilot. He probably did a lot of things like a pilot. But when push came to shove in crisis, guess what? He wasn't going to help you land the plane and get to your destination. Don't put your confidence in something that can't deliver the goods. God is a God of power and strength, and that is why we have great confidence in the providential power of God. Let me remind you of several things, and these are in your handout. Because of the providential power of God, I have a certainty in my prayers. You know, whether I think it was J.I. Packer said, everyone who gets on their knees and prays acknowledges the sovereignty of God. And we would say the providence of God. Whether you understand or not. Why? You're praying for God to intervene in something that you and everybody else can't do. And if God is not sovereign, then what are you doing? You're acknowledging God. You're my only hope to intervene. I'm praying for you, God. The Bible says in Hebrews 4.16, Let us then with what? confidence, boldly draw near to the throne of grace. Because of this power, I can have a certainty in my proclamation or my witnessing as I tell others about Christ. You see, it's not based upon me getting the outline right and getting the illustrations right. And No, you know what it is? It's just letting God do what He's going to do through my life and being a faithful witness to Jesus. You see, the Bible says that Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, the good news. For it, it, not me, Paul said, it is the power of God. Listen, Charles Spurgeon wandered in to a free Methodist church because he couldn't make it to his other church on a rainy, cold morning in London. And the pastor that was supposed to preach that day wasn't available or was sick or couldn't make it because of the weather. And at the last second, a deacon got up and opened up a scripture and just read a scripture. And the conviction of God penetrated that young man's heart. Charles Spurgeon preached to probably as many people uh, next to Billy Graham around the world. One of the greatest preachers of the, eight, of the 19th century. God doesn't need all the gimmicks and bells and whistles we think are so important of gimmicks. Churches pride themselves in having all these gimmicks to attract people. Listen, the same gimmick that attracts them, you better keep the gimmick. That's why at Easter, guess what? We don't do a lot of cappuccino and croissants and give away iPads and all that nonsense. Because if they were me, you know, there are churches that do stuff like that. You know, the Easter bunny reading the, the, the Easter story or what, just nonsense. You know what? When people come on Easter Sunday morning, I say, you know, pretty much if you come back next week, outside of a few resurrection singing hymns or whatever, this is what you get. We just preach the Bible. We worship God. 
Because again, if I'm, if I'm gimmicking their way and hoping that I'm going to win their heart, guess what? i got to keep the gimmicks going. So one week it's an Easter bunny. Next week i got to ride a unicycle with my hair on fire to get their attention. I've got to always kind of be... I gotta always be upping the game. But see, that's the humanistic man way that we do things instead of a reliance of what Paul said in Romans 1:16. I am not ashamed. A lot of churches and pastors are ashamed of the gospel. That's why much of the gospel isn't pro- uh, preached and taught. That's why many don't have the basic understanding of what the gospel even is. Paul said it's the power. And the certainty of His providential power is my protection. That gives me the security. I believe in the eternal security of the believer. I was raised in a church that believed in the eternal insecurity of the believer. Those of you in Kathleen, did you catch that? I live in Kathleen, so I can pick on Kathleen. I don't believe in the eternal insecurity. Where every week, well... I was saved last Sunday. I don't know if I'm saved this Sunday. You know, I kicked the dog, I smoked, I watched an R-rated movie, whatever it is you do. And you thought, well, I lost my salvation, so i got to come to church and get re-saved. No, 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 no. You're saved and held secure because of what Christ did, what God did. In Romans 8, great chapter, Paul said, For I am sure, I'm confident, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. He's like, give me their names. He said, we'll be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Notice, secondly, God's providence Not only power, but notice God's providential purpose. God's purpose. Psalm 138, verse 8. The Lord will fulfill His purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. You see, the Bible is clear that the God who made us, the God who sent Christ to rescue us from our sin, that He did it, for a purpose. God has, you know, the, the, the track, God has a wonderful plan for your life. That's a true statement. I know people kind of make fun of it and blah, 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 but that's true. I believe, look, I, I, don't, I don't know who, who's what and when, but I just presume that everybody's a candidate for the love of God. Isn't that probably a good idea, right? Aren't, aren't you glad I don't have to figure that out? God does have a wonderful plan for your life. If you... If you're interested, you know, you're interested. And he's going to fulfill that purpose. Listen, it's not fate. It's not chance. It's not luck. It's not coincidence that you're breathing right now. You are alive because God wanted you to be alive. Think about that. God wants you to be alive. The Bible says the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Think about this is that God who made you, designed you, He prescribed every single detail of your body. He deliberately chose your race. That's why racism is is so crazy and stupid. God chose your race. God chose the color of your skin. He chose your hair, your feature. He custom made you the way that He wanted you to be made. He designed your gifts, your talents, your intellect, your interests, all those things He was crafting a unique personality. He doesn't need a duplicate of you. He's got you as a unique creation, and He's got an eternal purpose and destiny for your life. One of the saddest things across the street is a cemetery, any cemetery. And I remember years ago, my uncle said, the saddest thing about a cemetery is all the buried potential. In that cemetery. There might be the cure for cancer in that cemetery. There might be the next great Apostle Paul, Billy Graham. I like Psalm 139. That's where I 
take a lot of this, and I want to read it from a different translation. Psalm 139, verse 13. David says, You made my whole being. You formed me in my mother's body. I praise you because you made me in an amazing and wonderful way. What you've done is wonderful. I know this very well. You saw my bones being formed as I took shape in my mother's body. When I was put together there, you saw my body as it was formed. Do you see the intentional purpose of God in the life creation of a child? All the days, look at this, verse 16. All the days planned for me were written in your book before I was one day old. Before there were any, the New King James says. God created you for a purpose. You were made for God. And I think one of the struggles that many times we have is we go through life struggling with the sense of why am I here? What is my purpose? And until you understand who you are and what God made you to be and what God has, and understand that my place and my purpose is first of all in knowing Him. Not so much what I do, but God's purpose is that I would know Him and love Him and glorify my, that my life would be wrapped up in Him. That's the first purpose. And there's all sorts of different ways. There's mystical ways that people have by saying, well, if you want to find your meaning of life, look within yourself. Well, let me tell you something. I've looked in myself and I didn't like what I found. Well, I need to take some philosophy courses to figure out the meaning of life. Well, listen, if you have any experience in taking philosophy courses in a secular university, that'll just make you more confused about life. Jean-Paul Sartre, one of the fathers of philosophical existentialism, warned many times his students before he taught and said, by the time you're done with this class, you might be tempted to commit suicide because of the meaningless and of life as he understood it. I think I'd transfer to Jim or something in that class, right? I think the best way is to get an understanding and a revelation of the Word of God. I love Philippians 1.6. Look at this. Remember Paul said being confident. Confident. Paul's in jail when he writes this. And he's confident about this very thing. Look at this. That he who did what? Begun a good work in you. What's he going to do? He's going to complete it. He's going to finish it to the day of Christ Jesus. I read earlier Romans 8.28. For those who are called according to his purpose. But not only is there power, purpose, and just giving us a framework of God's providence. But notice thirdly, God's providential promise. A lot of ways that we could talk about the promises of God in Scripture. 2 Peter 1.4 says, by which He has given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. God has given great truths that we can hang on to and we can trust in. One of the greatest promises of Scripture we talk a lot about in our studies uh, on Wednesdays and even, even here was that promise He gave in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3.15. That promise He made with Abraham, that covenantal promise. That's why we hold so near and dear the, co the commitment. When we did that study and message on Israel, we root it back to what that unconditional covenant that God made with Abraham there in Genesis chapter 12. Romans 4.21 And being fully convinced that He who promised... That He is able to perform. Listen, you may have had people in your lives, financial planners, car salesmen, you name it, whatever, and they made great promises. Problem was, they were like that pilot that could only promise you so much. But they were outside of the league and they made you promises they couldn't keep. They wrote checks that you couldn't cash. God makes a promise based and rooted. I love that. Again, go back to that Abrahamic covenant. When God had Abraham and they, they had those, that, that ancient rite that God had there in that Shekinah glory, uh, they had those animal carcasses that were split in half. And that was an ancient ritual of covenant making. 
and the glory or the Shekinah uh, uh, glory of God walk through those animal carcasses in the human way, both parties making a covenant agreement. Aren't you glad we sign things now? Wouldn't that be easier when you get a closing on the house? Hey, make sure you bring a, you know, a fowl and a, a deer, and you know, we don't have to do that, right? But in this ancient time, that was part of the process. Read it in Genesis 12. And normally, both parties would walk through in between, and the emphasis of the sacredness of that covenant was that if either one of us break this covenant, may it be done to us as these animals. That's how severe and serious that covenant was. But when God made covenant with Abraham, guess what? Mr. Abraham, he didn't walk through the middle of that. Only God did. God made covenant with himself. Because guess what? God knew Abraham and Tim Campbell can't keep their end of the agreement. That's why we call it an unconditional. Unconditional. God is faithful even when we are what? Unfaithful. Now, that should get an amen, at least from somebody. You see, God has got a great track record of fulfilling His promises. He promised a Redeemer. He kept His promise. He promised a Helper, the Holy Spirit. He kept His promise. And guess what? God has made a promise that His Son, Jesus, will return again. So I don't know about the future, but I do know this. The future ends and begins with the second coming of Christ. Think about that. Part of it ends, but a new beginning all is wrapped around Christ. Peter gives us some wise counsel in 2 Peter 3. A little long, but it's worth reading. 2 Peter 3, 1-9. Peter said, this now, the second letter that I'm writing to you. This is the Apostle Peter writing this to the churches that he ministered with. He said, Now is the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. That's what I'm doing here today. I'm stirring up your mind to remind you that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. I want you to remember the promise. Knowing this first, this is what's going to happen that scoffers, mockers, will come in the last days with scoffing, with mockery, following their own sinful desires. They will say, look at this, where is the promise of His coming? I don't see it. For they'd say, ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from beginning of creation. Look, there's no hope, there's no future, there's no second coming. Everything is just the way it's always been. Peter says in verse 5, notice, for they deliberately overlook this fact. I don't know about you, but a man that witnessed and held and touched and saw a resurrected man that's writing these words, I'm going to kind of tilt my belief system to what he's saying here. All right, just... That's a freebie. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Peter believed in a worldwide flood. There you go. He believed in a flood, a global flood. He said, but by that same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, judgment, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But he says in verse 8, do not, do not, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Meaning, time is an earthly. God doesn't have a daytimer. He doesn't have to do like me and put little reminder alarms to do things. No, time, a day, thousand, thousand, a day. He says, verse 9, but here it is. The Lord is not slow. One version said, the Lord is not slack 
to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is patient, patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish and that all should reach repentance. Listen, the delay of the second coming, God is wanting and desiring that all those that will believe will have that opportunity to believe. And there is events that are uncertain, but there's one certainty the Bible is crystal clear on, and that is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul affirmed this in 1 Thessalonians 4, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Verse 17, then we who are alive, that means there's going to be people alive when Jesus returns, who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Listen, good Christians differ in the details and timing and tribulation and all those things. But one thing, there is absolute agreement to those that love God and love the Word of God. It isn't about the timing. It's the truth that Jesus is physically, bodily returning again. Don't get wrapped up. I mean, it's fun. I do the same thing. My eschatology is based on the last book I read. Are y'all okay today? I mean, I'm giving, you, I'm giving you some good ones today. All right? No, I'm a student of the Word. I've got leanings and opinions. But you know one thing I'm crystal clear on is that Jesus is physically, bodily returning back. So what, what? You say, well, so what? Well, here's a so what. How should we be? One, we should be watchful. You can write these in in your outline. We should be watchful, paying attention. Matthew 24, 42. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. There should be not speculation that every time there's a world event, we're like, okay, this is it. I don't know. Here's the thing I do know. When Peter stood on the day of Pentecost and he quoted Joel to say this is what the Joel, uh, prophet Joel prophesied, he said, in the last days God will pour out His Spirit. So if in the year 33-34 A.D., Peter was saying that was the last days, in 2023, this is the last of the last of the last of the last of the last laster days. Listen, we are closer to that day than Peter was. Now where we are in that whole thing, I don't know. But I do know this. We're closer. You've heard me give this illustration before. You know, sometimes when you were in school, with the exception of my wife, would misbehave in class. And one of the ways that we got a, a, a good little break was when the teacher would have to go down to the office and she'd say, now y'all stay in your seats while I'm gone. I'll be right back. Right? Now, you might have put, appointed somebody to be a watchman at the door. Right? Sometimes you did, and you know, that didn't last. That was a time to go over to your buddy and talk or hit somebody randomly. You know, guys do stuff like that. They just hit each other, you know. But at some point, you hear those footsteps down the hall. And what do you do? If you're smart, you get back in your seat. And look like a little angel. Listen, guys, we can hear the footsteps coming down the hall. And that's why the Bible is saying, What should you be? What kind of people should you be? Be watchful, pay attention. But he also says, Be prayerful. Jesus said in Luke 21 36, Watch therefore and pray. Watch, pay attention, pray. Pray for what? Pray that I am a faithful, that I'm living holy, pure lives, that I'm living a life that when Jesus returns, that there will not be shame in His return. I'm not saying rejection. I'm saying shame in His return because I was not living to the degree that I professed 
my faith to be. You see, well, where do you find that? First John 2, 28. John says, and now, dear children, remain, remain in fellowship with Christ. So that when he returns, you will be full of courage and not shrink back from him in shame. And then he also reminds us to be faithful. Luke 21, verse 34 and 35, Jesus said, watch out. Don't let your hearts be dulled by carousing and drunkenness and by the worries of this life. Don't let that day. Listen, there is a day that is fixed. That's what Paul said in Acts 17, that God has fixed a day in this man Jesus, that he will judge the world. He said, don't let that day catch you unaware like a trap. For that day will come upon everyone living on the earth. I believe in the second coming of Christ. And I think sometimes we don't preach and teach enough about it. But we need to affirm that we believe what the Bible says, you remember in Acts 1.11, when Jesus ascended before His disciples? Notice the language here. You should mark these in your Bibles. When, the, when they saw Jesus bodily, physically ascend into heaven, these angels appeared to the disciples that watched Jesus rise and go away before their eyes. And these angels said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into the heaven? Notice the language here. This same Jesus. Not somebody born in Korea or Iran or Vietnam that claims to be a Messiah. This same Jesus. This same Jesus. This same exact person that you saw go into heaven will so come in what? Like manner as you saw him go into heaven. I don't know where any more verse is. Clearly, that is clearly speaking to the bodily second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, we're coming into the season of Christmas. But let me just compare this with you. The first time Jesus came, he was veiled in the form of a child. The next time he comes, he will be riding on a white horse. The first time he came, a star marked his arrival. His arrival. The next time he comes, the clouds will be rolled up like a scroll, and the stars will fall out of the sky, and he himself will be the light of heavens. The first time he came, wise men and shepherds brought him gifts. The second time he comes, he will bring rewards for his own. The first time he came, there was no room for him in that inn. The next time he comes, the whole world will not be able to contain his glory. The first time he came, only a few were there to welcome him into the world. And the next time he comes, the Bible says that every eye shall see him, every knee shall bow before him, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The providence of God should give us comfort and strength. I know there's a, there's a lot of whatabouts and those things, and some of those things we, we can understand and some things we can't. But if we compromise and throw out the very nature and the underpinning of the nature and character of God and believe in a God of luck and chance and a God who's as surprised by events as we are, I don't know about you, but there's no comfort in that. Absolutely no comfort. There's actually terror and fear at that kind of concept. I think about the wonderful lines that we sing at Easter. Because He lives, I can face tomorrow. Because He lives, all fear is gone. Because I know He holds the future and life. Life is worth the living because, just because, He lives. You see, our confidence, and some of you need confidence in God this morning, 
You need confidence in an uncertain future of a God who's in control of my yesterdays, today, and tomorrows. We have confidence in Him. We have confidence in God because God does not make any errors. He doesn't say oops. He makes no mistakes. And I'll close with this little, I've read it before, and I keep it in my Bible. And, and it's called, He Maketh No Mistake. The words will be on the screen, and let this just be a reminder. My Father's way may twist and turn. My heart may throb and ache. But in my soul, I'm glad I know He maketh no mistake. My cherished plans may go astray. My hopes may fade away. But still I'll trust my Lord to lead, for He doth know the way. Though night be dark and it may seem that day will never break, I'll pin my faith, my all in Him. He maketh no mistake. There's so much now I cannot see, my eyesight's far too dim. But come what may, I'll simply trust and leave it all to Him. For by and by the mist will lift, and plain it all He'll make. Through all the way, though dark to me, He made not one mistake. You see, that's the words of providence. That's the words, I don't know if Joseph understood the word, but he sure knew the truth. That he could look out at those evil, wicked brothers and he could say at one place in his life, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Sometimes we can't say that in the middle of it, right? And sometimes we may not even say it in this life. Do you realize that sometimes we don't get all the answers in this life? But when we look full into His, what, wonderful face, right? Eyes of Jesus, our eyes upon Him. Let's pray, Sherry.